All right, it says I'm live. Welcome to the Backyard Professor Sunday Night Firesides. I have a fabulous Sunday fireside to share with you guys tonight. Now, of course, I'm saying all of this uh, to absolutely nobody because no one's here yet. <laughs> I'll let you guys filter in before I get started, but here we are. Hey, someone finally showed up. Doug Vincent, the man. You the man, Doug. I'm not kidding, man. Woohoo! Yeah, another great Sunday night. <laughs> I've only been studying all blasted day and yesterday and all that. Woohoo! It's going to be a hoot. It's going to be a tough one. Yeah, we're uh, we're going to have fun. Oh, looks like we're gathering in pretty quick. Good. I uh I have a lot of ground to cover tonight. Man, I'm going to have to talk like 259 miles per. Paul Osborne, great to see you, my good friend. Yes, I'm glad you are here. Paul, meet Doug. Doug, meet Paul. Both of you are pretty dang good with the book Abraham, but Paul's better than all of us combined. We don't want to tell him that because it'll swell his fat head. <laughs> See, Paul, if you'll come on with me, you can defend yourself. <laughs> oh, I hope Moksha shows up. He's a hoot too, isn't he? We shall see. Give it a couple of minutes, and uh, I was just telling Doug it's been a great study week. Um, yeah, you are. There's no question. Uh, the... The week has been good weather-wise, but holy cow, today is cold and blustery and snowing off and on and rainy off and on. And it's just, I'm down here in my cold basement and had to turn my thermostat oh, down so it wouldn't bug me, interrupt me. So 74, oh, Doug, rub it in, cupcake. <laughs> All right, looks like we're getting gathered. Three likes already, and I haven't said anything. Thank you. You're very kind, all of you. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to... Steve Smoot has become the apologist I'm going to focus on. Uh, I mean, the kid is good in some respects. When he doesn't be an apologist... Boy, unfortunately for, for my luck and for all of your guys' luck, uh, I'm going to be reviewing one of his very worst pieces, and he actually thinks it's one of his good ones. Now, and I kind of talked about it a couple times ago, a couple of shows ago, when I said, if I was an apologist, this is the review I would have wanted to have written. You know, he gets into the Hebrew and he gets into the Egyptian a little bit and all that, but Man, I've read it several times this last week, along with Vogel's book, and uh, it's not real stellar. We'll, we'll see. I'll show you. Yeah. Kind of interesting. All right. Looks like there's a crowd here. Uh, let's see. I've been talking for three minutes and haven't said anything of value yet, so let's get going. There's enough of you here. Thanks, all you guys, for showing up. You're welcome to remain anonymous. You don't have to talk. It's only Doug and Paul. Maybe they'll be the only two chatting tonight. Woohoo! 
Okay. I'm going to go ahead and get started on the introduction, and uh, anybody who comes in late can just watch the beginning of the video. I spent uh, three minutes saying hello, and that's good enough. I want to jump right on this because I have an enormous amount of material that I want to get through. I want to do a test real quick. I want to see what, where to hold this so that I can, that'll work, that'll work. Let me hold this one up, too, just to see. Yep, that'll work. That'll work. Okay, good. I just, I've got some visuals I want to show all of you. So, anyway, okay, so here's the thing. Here's what we're going to do tonight. Uh, here a couple of weeks ago, I was alerted to the fact that Dan Vogel wrote a decent book. <laughs> No, not Dan. <laughs> that Steve Smoot had written a review of Dan Vogel's book and Dan Vogel's book. You can see all the tabs I have in that. That's what I'm going to be talking about tonight. The book of Abraham Apologetics, a review and a critique. Uh, Vogel was on uh, Mormonism Live this last Wednesday with Brent Metcalf and Joseph Smith made a guest appearance as well there at the very end. Hey, Patty Cake. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Anyway, um, so Vogel reviewed all of the materials in the Kirtland Egyptian papers. And so I read him, and thanks to Paul, Paul Osborne here, uh, you actually got the book quite a bit before I did and started talking about it. And I took a few months before I could get it and I got it. And it, it's been sensational. It, it's, it is one of the finest books out there. Well, Steve Smoot wrote a review. Now the review of Steve Smoot is out of, it's called framing the book of Abraham presumptions and paradigms. So, you know, when they start th with that kind of a title that it's going to be apologetic claptrap, right? Well, I was hoping Smoot wouldn't do that. Unfortunately he did. So we can go from there. This is in the interpreter uh, for 2021 number 47 a journal of Latter-day Saint faith and scholarship and lousy book reviews. So what, what I noticed uh, when I read through uh, Smoot's review, I, I took notes, you know, wanted to see who had the better argument, who had the better evidence for their case, because I know Smoot is a little dynamo when it comes to the book of Abraham. And I know through the years that Dan Vogel has been studying this for decades. And that's what him and Brent Metcalf were showing last Wednesday, as they have a lot of knowledge on this subject. So who has the better case? Who has the, the better information? Who has the better evidence? Who has the better scholarship? And I read through, I read through uh, Smoot and thought it was good. I read through Vogel. Then I reread through Smoot. Then I reread through Vogel. Here's the problem with uh, this kind of a book review that Smoot wrote. Uh, the main issue is we don't learn a lot about Vogel's book.
in this book review. <laughs> we learn a lot more about Stephen Smoot and his uh, his approach, his desire to defend the book of Abraham. For the first six or seven pages, he completely wastes your time trying to show you how complex and vast the background is in necessary to study the book of Abraham properly. And he completely misunderstands what Dan Vogel is doing in his book. And I would, I would put, now I've been comparing and contrasting since I quit being an apologist a few years back. I've been comparing and contrasting uh, apologetic work with scholarship. And this is by far the best comparison I've found. And, and unfortunately for Smoot, he's the one that gets to be the comparison now because Smoot's material is much, much closer, more in line with being apologetic than with scholarship. And Dan's book is certainly on a very high caliber level of actual scholarship where he looks at the evidence and then he describes what the evidence is showing us in the process of trying to straighten out the chronology of the use of the papyri, which Joseph Smith and his scribes were working with and translating and transcribing and writing down and comparing notes and all. Bogle wants to find out just what is going on on. So his focus is really interesting because it's right in the introduction. <laughs> you know, he says it within the first five pages of his introduction, and apparently, whoosh, that went right over Smoot's head. So Smoot got off to a very bad start. Hey, Dana Moss, Diana Moss, sorry, Tim Rathbone, welcome, welcome. Mark Crispin, how you guys doing? Good to see y'all. So anyway, um, what happens here, Smoot wants to get his PhD, and I suspect we all know why, seriously, because he's trying to, uh, well, more or less take over after John Gee either gets fired or quits or retires, and uh, Kerry Mulstein will be the senior dog. Uh, Michael Dennis Rhodes has more or less left the scene, I think. He's he's getting older. He's probably retired as well. So um, I think Smoot's getting his PhD in Egyptology so that he can become the next apologist in line of all of the great BYU Egyptological failures. Not one of their ideas has actually taken hold and convinced everyone else that, yeah, that's pretty much the way it is. That's how it works, etc. Not one of them. They've all failed, which is really dynamic for us to grasp. So here is the, uh, while you guys are talking and introducing, here is an outline of Smoot's review of Dan Vogel, which I find to be extremely uh, 
interesting as I read, I think I've read through Smooth Review, well, several times and Vogel's book several times. Here's what I found in writing my notes. Now, Dan Vogel and I have been in communication and he shared with me uh, some of his notes and comments. And I saw many, many, many of the same things that Dan did. So he actually said I was a pretty smart fellow and he was sure I was going to do a good bang up job tonight. Thank you for the vote of confidence, Dan Vogel. Hope you're here. Hey, Radio Free Mormon. Great to see you. Don't spank smoot too hard, Carrie. It's too late. The spanking has begun. Okay, here we go. Smoot misunderstands. The first point that I want to make is smoot really does genuinely misunderstand that Vogel is not focusing on the book of Abraham. And for the first six pages, Smoot wants Vogel. Smoot gets mad at Vogel in his book review for not paying close enough attention to the evidences that establish the divine authenticity and antiquity of the book of Abraham. Who cares? That wasn't what Vogel's book was about. See, that's a, this is a perfect uh, apologetic hit piece. In other words, Smoot's review. Yeah. So Smoot mocks Vogel for saying that Joseph Smith is in charge of the translation papers, but he ignores. Now, this, this is one reason why I had to reread the materials, because Smoot ignores all 100% of Dan Vogel's evidences for Joseph Smith's involvement for his dictation to his scribes and his scribes writing simultaneously, which I will show tonight. He won't touch it with a 10-foot pole. Smoot ignores all of it. He's terrified of the dictation evidences is the only possible conclusion because this is one of Bogle's very strongest parts of his book. Smoot won't touch it. He does mention it, but he will not analyze it <laughs> to refute it, agree with it, whatever. He just won't touch it. He wants to hurry up and jump forward to talking about the book of Abraham, which is not the point at all. So the third point, Smoot never mentions Oliver Cowdery's description of the Egyptian language and its comprehensiveness. And this is really important. He never once talks about the five-degree system of magnification of Egyptian hieroglyphics that the Egyptian grammar discussed at all. He won't even talk about it, let alone refute it, accept it, whatever. There's just, there's no discussion of this at all. So this is a key evidence in Vogel that he talks about. The fourth point, Smoot ignores Vogel's chronology from the Joseph Smith history itself. Now, this was quite remarkable. I, I mean, from the official church history of Joseph Smith, Smoot does not accept that chronology because he's accepted. He's basically just jumping in bed with John Gee, you know, and John Gee is trying to refute the official history. I mean, we're talking it's nuts, folks, but it really is. And Vogel demonstrates this. It's astonishing. The alphabet was done. Now, the alphabet 
was done. Now, this according to Joseph Smith, not Dan Bogle. Dan Bogle is quoting the history of the church. It was done in July 1835. Let's keep that in mind. It was not done in October 1835. That was when the astronomy was unfolded to Joseph and his scribes, right? John Gay disputes that. <laughs> I'll, I'll explain that why a little later tonight. It's astonishing. The fifth point, Smoot entirely skips two whole chapters in Vogel's book, chapters two and three, on Princess Ketuman and the pure language of Adam in the papyri. That's right. The pure language of Adam in the Egyptian papyri. Smoot skips over these two chapters. It's astonishing because John Gee has mockingly misused the valuable discovery notebook by sarcastically asking if the first 23 Egyptian characters of the alphabet are the book of Abraham. Well, no one thinks this except the Mormon apologists who want to try to distance Joseph Smith away from the Kirtland Egyptian papers. So they're going to make all kinds of idiotic red herring straw man arguments and then mock anybody who thinks other than how they think. I, this is where the apologists are confusing the issue. And Dan Vogel has clarified this beautifully, as I hope to show tonight. Vogel's evidence simply damns the apologists' mockery. Who else is here? Oh, a few more people. Welcome, welcome. Good to see y'all. The sixth point is Smoot mentions Robert Rittner. Now, now Smoot, for the last, what, six or seven articles that he's written, has mentioned Rittner in order to get a footnote out of him. But he never once engages any of Rittner's information whatsoever. He will not attempt to refute or agree. He won't attempt to discuss or analyze the evidence as Robert Rittner has been doing. He simply mentions his name with the implication that oh, I am completely familiar with Robert Rittner. And that's all, I mean, Smoot is as shallow as they can get. He goes into the shallow end of one-inch deep waters when it comes to Rittner. He will not engage in him in any manner. He does the same thing with H. Michael Marquardt, who also has some phenomenal information that Smoot could have utilized to help his book review, but which he does not. But he's dropping names, and so it makes him seem like he's an authority, right? That, that this is his impression that he wants to give. Rittner has already destroyed everything that John Gee has ever stood for in his book and in his numerous articles. And yet Smoot sides with John Gee, but he won't refute Rittner. Now that's, you know, that's, that's weird. <laughs> that's goofy. In fact, the human sacrifice idea in Egypt is historically wrong. Rittner has demonstrated that. The location of Ur is wrong. 
Robert Rittner has demonstrated that. Ulishim is a fantasy Egyptian words such as shiniha, enish goandash, and so on and so forth. All of these are just invented. They're fantasies. There's no reality Egyptian-wise to any of this. Facsimile are, tra are translated incorrectly. They're mistranslated. And all of this is ignored by Smoot. And yet Vogel touches on all of this in his book. Very interesting. Smoot won't touch it. And it's been in print for years. That's the other thing. Smoot has no excuse. He's aware of the material. He just will not engage in it. Perhaps he does feel he's too young and he needs to get his PhD first. I, I don't know. But if, if his review, if his PhD was reliant on this book review for him getting his PhD, he wouldn't get it. Because this review that he wrote is simply unacceptably too low of a standard for scholarship. I mean, it's spectacular as apologetics. And as apologetics, it still sucks. And it's unfortunate, I have to say that about your book, about your book review, Stephen Smoot, but I, you can do better, man. I know you can. There's no question in my mind, I know you can. So the seventh point, Smoot focused, oh, this, kiddo, you have to do better than this. Smoot focused on only one witness on the long scroll. Oh, thank, oh my goodness. <laughs> Doug Vincent, you are way too kind. Thank you so much for that contribution. Nathan Ams, welcome. Oh, you are just way too kind, buddy. I'm gonna right now. Smoot focused on only one witness, Charlotte Haven. Vogel focused on seven witnesses. And neither one, oh, thank you, fine business operator. Get a case of Coke on me. I'm, I will too, man. In fact, woohoo, I'm going to drink in advance right now, you hoodlums. Here's some Diet Coke. Oh, okay. Here's the thing that just blew me away. Neither Dan Vogel nor Stephen Smoot actually even used Henry Caswell's witness, right? So, but to be fair to Dan Vogel now, Henry Cass, Dan Vogel was talking about the witnesses that Kerry Mulstein was using to support a long scroll and Vogel demonstrated that Molstein's witnesses do not do that, only a creative misreading and a misinterpretation can get the witnesses to look like they are talking about the long scroll, right? The missing scroll. So, but for Smoot to only use one witness, when Vogel himself used seven, that's unacceptable. Smoot, that's not good enough, dude. I, I, I'm truly, sincerely serious. I would fail your book review on that alone. Sincerely. I, I hate to say that, but that's what I do, bud. 
The eighth point, Smoot misunderstands how the biblical provenance of the papyri does not save Joseph Smith. It really does utterly destroy him, truly. Number nine, did Smoot even actually read Vogel's book? Now, I'm sorry I have to ask that question of you, Smoot. I, I really am, but I really have to wonder. Uh, did you just read a couple of the chapters uh, in Vogel instead of reviewing the whole book? Because there's no way anyone at Interpreter peer-reviewed your book review, Stephen. There's, there's no, don't even try to tell me you got peer-reviewed. You could not have, unless, of course, the interpreter really has gotten both lazy and incompetent in peer review. They all need to take classes on how to do proper peer review to get an article published if your article was peer reviewed. I, I seriously am skeptical about that. And yet it drastically needs to be peer reviewed because it's, it's just not quality work, man. I'm sorry I have to say that, but seriously, it needs to be cleaned up. The 10th point, Smoot. Dude, Stephen, look, I know you're never going to watch this video, but if you do, I'm going to talk to you one-on-one -on -one for a moment. Dude, you mentioned, you know, Brian Hauglid has changed his position, right? He's no longer an LDS apologist slash scholar. He really does accept the Dan Vogel paradigm of how the evidence reads, right? You're aware of that. I mean, you said so. Then why are you still using Hauglid to defend your view? That is utterly ludicrous. Dude, you can't do that. Hauglid you're quoting Hauglid's old views that Hauglid himself has said, I no longer accept those views. What, what the hell are you doing that for? You know, that's as stupid as Jeff Lindsay continuing to use my Egyptological Mormon apologetic. Paul Osborne showed me a couple of months ago, Jeff Lindsay is still using my old apologetic from 10 years ago. <laughs> now that's, that is dumb because I'm telling you, I've said it before, I'm saying it again. Everything I wrote as an apologist is bunk. If, if you're so desperate that you have to use my stuff, then you've lost. You've lost anyway, but you can't keep using Howland when he has changed his mind. That, that just can't possibly be valid. How could you do that? I, I'm, I'm, that blows me away. Enough said on that. The 11th point, Smoot does not grasp that not all of the Kirtland Egyptian papers are about the book of Abraham. And neither is the bound grammar book that Joseph Smith was dictating his translation to, to his scribes and explaining how the grammar worked with the five degree of signification system, which Stephen Smoot entirely ignores completely, which is ludicrous because Vogel goes on for pages talking about it, which I will cover tonight. So if you've actually read his book, you would have understood this, Stephen. 
But see, that's one of the reasons why I'm wondering, did you really read his book? Uh, if you're going to write a book review, my advice is you really ought to read the book. Honest, I'm just saying, really. Number 12, critics have never argued that none of the papyri are missing. Uh, when are you apologists going to get that? We've been saying that for years. May I please reiterate it? We critics, we actual historians, we realists, we enlightened ones, I don't know what to call myself, but I damn sure I'm not a goofy apologist doing the brethren's bidding from Salt Lake City anymore. We are not saying Joseph Smith has, that we have all the papyri Joseph Smith had. We know some papyri are missing. Every cotton-picking Egyptologist admits that, whether they're Mormon or not. Okay? Let, please, let's get that clear. Quit bringing that dumb red herring up time and again. It's old and it's faulty. Seriously. Come on. We've got to get on a level of where we actually communicate uh, instead of bringing up old, stupid, false, bad arguments like you're doing in this book review. Sincerely. Now, the, the 13th point is Gee's long roll theory. Make no mistake about this. Cook and Smith destroyed Gee's long scroll missing theory. Let's be crystal clear. Stephen Smoot, you're still going with John Gee. Now, you did bring up this issue with Cook and Smith, and you basically ham-hawed about it. Let's be crystal clear. John Gee was speculating there are dozens of extra feet of missing scroll, uh, enough so that the Book of Abraham could be on, Cook and Smith spanked his bare little boyish bottom bright red with the mathematics. Guy came back and did the mathematics wrong, and Cook responded to Guy and obliterated him. He showed that there is no more than 21 inches of papyri missing. Now, here again, uh, Smoot has ignored the fantastic 13-hour interview with Radio Free Mormon and John DeLynn live, where Rittner was talking about all of this material for 13 fantastic hours. Just within the last couple of years, Smooth ignores all of that. Rittner from the Egyptological view has also demonstrated with all known existing books of breathing that there can't possibly be as much missing papyri as John Gee so wants it to be. John Gee is whistling in the dark, Stephen Smoot. Now, my suspicion is you do know this. You keep dropping Rittner's name, you know. 
I know you're well aware of Radio Free Mormon. I know you have to be aware of the 13-hour interview. That is epic. The whole world knows about it. That was one of Robert Rittner's last things he did in life was interview about John Gee, his idiotic Egyptological student turned apologist. And yet you're ignoring that. That's unacceptable, Stephen Smoot. That's unacceptable. Dude, you have to upgrade yourself no matter how painful it is. Otherwise, you're going to end up in the doghouse. And I don't mean the Anubis doghouse. That's heaven because Anubis is a god. John Gee be damned on what else he says. He's stupidly wrong there. But you're in the doghouse with John Gee if you keep going after his views when they've been so soundly refuted by the Western Hemisphere's greatest Egyptologist, recognized worldwide, Stephen Smoot. It's not enough to just drop Rittner's name. That doesn't impress any of us. Our question is, when are you going to refute him? We know you can't. It's that simple, right? So anyway, I don't mean to rat and rave at you, Stephen Smoot, but really, truly, um, tonight you need a spanking. You need to wake up. You either need to wake up or kill your credibility, and you don't even have your PhD yet, and the kind of tripe you're kicking out right now wouldn't get you your PhD. You must realize that, kiddo. Don't do this kind of shit work in your PhD dissertation up in Canada for Egyptology. You're going to fail. Do the real scholarship. But then just because you come back to the lower status of Mormon apologetics doesn't give you the right to lower the bar down to one inch high and simply walk over it and imagine you set a world record for the high jump. That's not how this works, Stephen Smoot. The bar is at world record height right now, seven foot nine, and you're going to have to do something to clear it. And no, you don't get a cheat and duck under it like Guy, Molstein, Rhodes, and Nibley did. You have to high jump over it or you don't get the point. That's how this works. Finally, boy, now I'm on a roll. 14, Smoot thinking he has refuted Vogel on the concept of revelation is seriously amusing. Stephen Smoot, if you had read Dan Vogel's book carefully enough, you would have realized that Vogel is taking the other LDS apologist, Terrell Givens, to lunch on this issue. It is Terrell Givens that you are mocking and arguing against Stephen Smoot, not Dan Vogel. Dan Vogel was talking about Terrell Givens problematic revelation issue. So you've got problems in your own house, let alone outside. So those are some of the points of view that I have on Stephen Smoot and his uh, discussion on Dan Vogel's book. The, the really unfortunate thing, sincerely, is not only did uh, Smoot skip chapters two and three, but his analysis of uh, Vogel's approach to the sources, the 19th century sources for Abraham's sacrifice and the 
the lousy parallels that Mormon apologists have presented on the book of Abraham, uh, again, Stephen, you did not grasp how Vogel was using that evidence and information. He was not arguing against the book of Abraham. Dan Vogel is arguing against shoddy, unacceptable scholarship through really bad parallels. And that's what Vogel was talking about. It has nothing to do with worrying about the authenticity of the book of Abraham. It has absolutely everything to do with the, for lack of a better way to describe this, the desperation, we'll say, of the apologist to try to get Joseph Smith on a par with reality, which so far Mormon apologetics have just miserably failed at accomplishing. Stephen Smoot, you didn't save the day, not with this book of you. Perhaps uh, once you get your PhD, you can devote some serious time to first reading a book and then reviewing it. That would be my strong advice. Uh, I dang sure hope you do that for your PhD. You better bloody well read every text and make dang good and sure you can translate the Egyptian in order to get your PhD, my friend. Because no, I don't have one. So in a way, I'm kind of out to lunch here. But I know many people who have acquired their PhDs, and I've had long conversations with them. And the caliber and level of your scholarship is not there. You're great when you're doing scholarship. But like all the others, which is unfortunate because I believe it is the nature of the apologetic enterprise itself, when you lower yourself to do mere apologetics, you suck. And I've told John Gee that. I've told Kerry Moolstein that. I've told Michael Dennis Rhodes that. I've told Hugh Nibley that. Why do you think the pattern is consistent that you guys suck? when it comes to apologetics, is because you are not using the scholarship that you're acquiring for care, for serious, honest analysis of what the evidence means. You ignore too much that is unfavorable to you because you're stupidly following after the ridiculous guide of Kerry Molstein, and he has been taken to the woodshed with other Egyptologists. So, Stephen Smoot, this isn't me just calling names. I'm trying to help you here. And it's going to take tough love and a brutal, swift, bad spanking on your bare little butt because I suspect and I know you can do better. I have faith in you that you can do better. I know you, but damn it, man, you gotta hurry up and start doing better because your time's running out. Here's the other thing that scares me for you. What if people do get a hold of your advisory committee like they did with John Gee with Robert Rittner? And they begin to show the ridiculously lousy non-scholarly materials that you're kicking out 
behind the scenes in Mormonism, all the while trying to get a PhD in the one subject that is absolutely wiping out the church. Uh, what do you think your PhD committee is going to say to you? You know, don't do what John Gee did with Robert Rittner. Don't go that direction. Why would you want to? Why are you trying to imitate these guys when you're above them? My advice is get serious about your scholarship. Save your credibility. It's not too late. But once you get your PhD, kiddo, once you get that PhD and then you put out stupid stuff like this, you're had. I'm coming at you with tooth and claw. Right now, I'm just paddling you. Next time, I slash you to ribbons, my friend. No, I'm not a PhD, and I can't translate Hebrew as good as you can, but I do know how to study it. And I can't translate Egyptian as good as you do, but I do know how to study it. And I know the Egyptologists who know it better than you ever will, and they don't come to the conclusions that any other Mormon apologist comes to because you guys have to worry about pleasing the brethren and the rest of us worry about what the actual state of the evidence is. And that's the difference between apologetics and scholarship. Stephen Smoot, pay attention to me. I'm trying to help you. I promise. But don't ever write a stupid bullshit piece like this again, or I'm going to smack you down like you've never been smacked down before. I'm being charitable tonight. I promise. So no offense. I'm not trying to out hominem you. I, I promise. Every one of these issues has to do with your truly terrible book review. And the, I, you know, you got to give me more. You got to give me more. You got to up your game, my friend. Yeah. You, you have to improve Stephen. You know better than to do it this way. Dan Vogel's been at this for decades. You're not going to buffalo him. You can't skip three-fourths of the best part of his book and imagine none of the rest of us are going to see that. Come on, what are you thinking? Come on, you can do better than this. I have faith in you, but now, I, I mean, now, don't ever write something stupid like that again would be my advice. Now, I've I've gone on and on. And I apologize. I'm ranting and raving now. And I meant to get to uh, Dan Vogel's materials. I'm going to get to his Dan Vogel's materials here. Uh, anyway, how's everybody doing? You're probably getting tired of me. Dr. Dart. Hey, Huff Daddy. Huff Daddy, good to see you. Patty Cake. Mark Christman, you're still here. Yes, yes, yes. Fine business operator. Uh, Doug Vincent. Yeah, yeah. Fine. Yeah. Okay. I'll, I'll, oh, Dan Vogel. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Dan Vogel. That's a very excellent parallel. Hey, Stephen Smoot, seriously. Dan Vogel has just told us that your review reminds him of Hugh Nibley's review of Fon Brody. Now, it was cute. It was fun. Yeah, we probably laughed a little bit and all that. But at the end of the day, when all the mirth and merrymaking was over, and we actually got down to serious brass tacks, uh, Nibley's review of Brody just sucked rotten marshmallows. It was not good. Uh, and every historian, except Mormons, acknowledge that, right? So anyway, I, I, I feel bad because I feel like I'm really, I'm not trying to make you an enemy, I promise. But uh, seriously, the 
the difference with your review being apologetic and Dan Vogel's book being scholarship has never been so stark in all my life. And that really hurts me to have to say it that way. But I have to, because I'm trying to be honest too. No, I'm not a PhD, but yes, I've read serious scholarship seriously for decades. I can recognize good stuff and bad stuff. I think. So let me get on to Dan Vogel's book. So here's why I want to get on to Dan Vogel's book. And again, Stephen, uh, if you're watching this, you probably won't. I can't blame you. Uh, you apologists are too thin-skinned anyway to handle the truth and handle the actual evidence and what it actually means. Dan Vogel clarifies you apologists are confusing us. And that's all the difference between apologetics and scholarship. And you apologists better get on the bandwagon, hustle it up, and do better work. You're being left behind. So here's why I want to talk about Dan Vogel, because Stephen Smoot literally, now this is a book review, you know, and in a book review, the idea the idea in a book review, don't you think, is that you want to find out, well, what's this book about? Well, sure, duh. So Stephen Smoot writes a book review about Dan Vogel. Okay, well, I don't have Dan Vogel's book. I wonder what this book's about. The real unfortunate thing is you're not going to learn a lot about Vogel's book from the review, and that's not the proper way to do a book review. It's supposed to be about Vogel's book, not Smoot being mad because Vogel didn't uh, demonstrate the authenticity of the book of Abraham, which wasn't even his purpose. So, but Smoot skipped the vast majority of chapter one, all of the evidence for dictation, with Joseph Smith dictating to the scribe simultaneously writing down as Joseph Smith gave him the translation of the papyri. Smoot didn't touch any of that. He skipped chapter two, the entire chapter on the valuable discovery notebook and the princess Khatuman, and then he skipped chapter three on the pure language of Adam. Now, is it just me? You guys tell me in the chat right now. Quit talking and listen to me for just a moment. Hey, audience, I love that you're having fun in the chat. Hold on. I have something important to say to you for the moment. Does the fact that Joseph Smith was involved in discovering the pure language of Adam before he ever acquired the papyri? Okay, he's studying the pure language of Adam, and there were characters written down in the pure language of Adam, and then the papyri were found, Joseph Smith purchased them, and then in the grammar and alphabet, the characters from the pure language of Adam showed up. Now, is am I the only one that finds that absolutely astonishing? 
Wouldn't you, honest to God, want to know a little bit more about, have you ever even heard of this before? The pure language of Adam, the characters, you know, part of the alphabet. Dan Vogel shows how Joseph Smith was working on the pure language of Adam back four or five years before the papyri ever showed up. And then all of a sudden the papyri show up and in the grammar, the pure language of Adam shows up, the characters. And Joseph Smith is translating those characters and the ideas find their way into the book of Abraham. Now, I can't possibly be the only one who says, wow, tell me more. I had no, you never got that in Sunday school. You never got that in a sacrament meeting. You dang sure never got that in priesthood meeting. Yet that's part of the history of the church. That is fantastically interesting. Stephen Smoot ignores all of that. I want to know more about that, right? Okay, let me see what you're saying. Yeah, me too, Goldface. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree, Dan Vogel. What the hell is a pure language? Huff Daddy, the Adamic language. The first language by the first man was called the pure language, according to society itself. The Adamic language was the first language, and it was pure because it was given to Adam from God. That is the language Joseph Smith said the Jaredites were allowed to retain. Vogel talks about this in his book. They they came to America with the pure language of Adam. So that was what was interested to Joseph Smith. And then all of a sudden, we find the pure language in the grammar of the Egyptian papyri, and it makes its way into the book of Abraham. That's mind-boggling. I have never heard of that before until I read Vogel's book. <laughs> so, and yes, I've never heard of it either until I read Dan Vogel's book. And the Princess Kautuman. Yes, it's important. I agree with you, Doug Vincent. Hang on, now that I've got myself all excited and slobbering and drooling. I was going to do a uh, an entire discourse on the on the Princess Kautuman. I, I do want to show before... I might skip crime and I might have to come back and do both of them. Who knows? I may just have to do a longer night tonight. It's I'm getting up in time. Let's take a look at this. Okay. So we all know that when the papyri were found, that, uh, is that, is that enough? Those characters off the papyri were put on the margin this is the margin of the Egyptian alphabet and grammar, of the uh, Book of Abraham translation, I'm sorry. The characters were taken from the Book of Breathings, put in margins, and then the Book of Abraham was translated out in English. We're all familiar with that aspect of it, right? This one is thanks to Chris Smith. This is a beautiful graphic. This shows the Book of Breathings, okay? 
What is outlined in pink is the gap, the lacuna in the book of breathings. There's a gap in it. The gap in pink here is this gap right there. They call it a lacuna, okay? So I'm going to show you the gap. In that gap. Now, those are the characters on the four lines that Joseph Smith put into the margins in the translation and translated the book of Abraham from. But those characters in the pink triangle gap, these characters here that were missing from the papyri are invented characters. They are not Egyptian hieratic or hieroglyphic. Joseph Smith invented those characters, yet he kept translating the book of Abraham as if they were legitimate parts of the book of Abraham. So Vogel calls this a pious fraud idea. I have a hard time disagreeing with him. Here is the next uh, deal that I wanted to show. Vogel has all of this in his book, too, and he explains it far better than I'm going to be able to tonight. I would seriously advise you to read his book. I will try to just word this in my own words, even though Vogel gives excellent historical information on this. These two up here, those are the first two hieroglyphics that they copied off the papyri and translated into the book of Abraham. This third character down here is the first invented character in the gap. Here. You can correct me if I'm wrong, Dan Bogle. I don't think I am. I'm looking at this in a in a reverse mirror. That first, these first two characters, this one and this one, they have flaked off now in our day. In Joseph Smith's day, they could still see it down here on the papyri. Then there's a gap through here, and there's several characters that are not hieratic. That first character. Is that that first character, interestingly enough, is taken from the hieroglyphs to the right of facsimile number one, right there. This is how Joseph Smith and his scribes drew this hieroglyph. They obviously could not actually see what it was. It means Osirwer, the father that Osiris is great. This was Hor's father's name. But Joseph Smith, this hieroglyph, in the facsimiles hieroglyphs, is the one that Joseph Smith told the witnesses is the signature of Abraham. 
That's the one he pointed to when he said, that's the signature of Abraham. Well, this hieroglyph, as the brethren drew it, has a most astonishing provenance in the papyri. <laughs> this is really remarkable because what happens when we get to the grammar, it's, it's in the alphabet, but the grammar it's expounded on. And in the grammar, this same figure is shown up at the very top. And notice how underneath that, the next sentence that is written shows that this character is dissected. It's broken apart into lines and dots, and then each dot and each line is given an interpretation and a translation. They did this dissecting of Egyptian characters for three Egyptian hieroglyphs, which are the examples of the method with which they were translating the Egyptian by dissecting the hieroglyphs. This was the five-degree system that they were using. They would dissect the character and then put it through five different degrees of meaning. And each degree of meaning increased the significance and the overall context of the hieroglyph. And Vogel shows some outstanding examples of this. However, I do want to get to one of the main points of Vogel's book because Smoot skipped over it, and this is absolutely essential to understanding what the problem with the apologetic confusion is. Where is this stemming from? And I want to try to be, I hope I've worded this correctly. I've gotten this from Dan Vogel. If I am mistaken, don't blame Dan. This is me. Talk to me about it. Yell at me. But Dan's here, so maybe he can keep me on my toes here. Here is, in a nutshell, I'm going to try to show this. This is the reverse translation theory of the Mormon apologists. Okay? This is what Dan Vogel's book was written for. Not to argue against the book of Abraham, but to, to show how the desperate apologetics of the Mormon apologists have become away from the actual evidence. The evidence of the Kirtland Egyptian papers does not support 
the apologetic. So let's see what the reverse translation theory is. All five chapters of the book of Abraham was translated and or finished in July 1835. That's one of the premises of the reverse translation theory. Joseph Smith was not the leader of the alphabet or of the Egyptian grammar. William Phelps authored the Egyptian alphabet and grammar himself. Frederick G. Williams wrote and Parrish copied Williams' work. Joseph Smith did not dictate to his scribes simultaneously, but he actually copied them. No one was translating Egyptian characters in the margins. Another issue is there is a missing scroll of Abraham. There is no source document available. The Egyptian characters in the margin were added after the English text of Abraham was written down, and the point of the hieroglyphic characters is they helped align the paragraphs of the English text. The valuable discovery booklet, the Princess Khatuman, the dictation evidences, and the pure Adamic language in the Kirtland Egyptian papers and in the Egyptian alphabet and grammar and in the Book of Abraham itself is ignored or else it's disparaged and downplayed in order to get Joseph Smith as far away from these papers as possible. All of the Kirtland Egyptian papers the valuable discovery notebook, the alphabet and grammar are assumed to be talking about the book of Abraham only. They are not. It is assumed the grammar and the alphabet is the hieroglyphics used to translate the book of Abraham. It is not. This theory does not recognize the book of breathings as the source of the book of Abraham, but that is the source. And one of Dan Vogel's videos responds to Kerry Molstein, who is really, honest to goodness, stupidly trying to associate the hieroglyphics from the Gael, the G-A-E-L, the grammar of the alphabet and the Egyptian language, with the translation of the Book of Abraham, and he's just muddling it all up, uh, and Dan Vogel corrects him in that video. This reverse translation theory literally never talks about the dictation evidence that Vogel has presented. Now, Vogel's book is new. We've been saying for years that Joseph Smith dictated two scribes who wrote down the translation together. And he had two scribes on the occasion so that they could control each other and make sure each one of them are hearing Joseph Smith correctly and that they're writing down the same material and all that because Joseph Smith wanted his translation to be as accurate as possible. And none of the apologists have ever refuted 
the dictation evidence. Vogel presents the dictation evidence. And it is incredibly interesting. Now, hopefully it won't take too long to get to this, but the one piece of evidence that is just amazing to me is this one right here. I want you to look at this, uh, that one right there. That is fantastic because what this is showing us is that the hieroglyphs were not added later after the English text was written. They have been erased and redrawn in to match the Egyptian hieroglyph, the, the Egyptian, I mean, the English text. This is showing that the handwriting of Warren Parrish is showing the repositioning. And this, you can see, it's just very light under here. It's very lightly there. And he scraped it off and moved it up because he had put the hieroglyphic in the wrong spot and he did not anticipate how much English would goof up the alignment. And he did that with this one here too. It was down here and he had to scrape it off and then move it up to match the translation. That's good evidence that the Egyptian hieroglyphics were not just added later on as decoration or to align the English paragraphs. Smoot didn't touch any of this. None of it whatsoever. There's another beautiful indication right there where we can see the one hieroglyph has some English next to it, and yet there's, an, there's a hieroglyph and no English text. Well, that's proof positive that the hieroglyphics were not added later. That particular hieroglyphic just never had English text applied to it. That shows the hieroglyphic was there first, folks. That's pretty dang good evidence on Vogel's part. Another interesting piece of evidence is this one. Look at how, now, this group of hieroglyphics, uh, some of those take up quite a bit of space, don't they? I mean, some of them are fairly long. When they were written out, the English is written out to accommodate their length anticipating those Egyptian lengthy hieroglyphics. That's not hieroglyphics being added on later. That's hieroglyphics and them being translated. That's a beautiful piece of evidence for that. Smoot touches none of this. He does not dictate with this kind of evidence in the, now, all of this is available on the church's website, the Joseph Smith Papers, or it's in the uh, volume four in the uh, Book of Abraham book in the Joseph Smith Papers that you can get. And then there's the issue of the writing going past the margin, and yet they're still translating the English text there and there. 
And then this third, now this third one, I want to read Vogel's treatment of this because his information, the way he puts this, right here, this is really good on Abraham 1 and 4. I'm going to hold this up for you so that you can read it yourself. Now, we can see here that what we have here is some people believe that the Williams document is the earliest copy. And they say that Parrish simply copied Williams' document. Now, when we look at it, we see that Williams and Parrish wrote simultaneously as Joseph Smith dictated to them. This is beautifully apparent here because both Williams and Parrish wrote, quote, whereunto, you can see that, whereunto, then they canceled it, they drew that line through it, and instead wrote unto on the line immediately following the cancellation. This shows that one scribe was not simply copying the other one, nor were they copying a now missing document. The simplest way to explain how the same inline emendation occurred in two documents is that both scribes were writing from dictation at the same time and that Smith made an immediate correction which both scribes noted. And there's other examples of this. And unfortunately, I didn't photocopy this off. So I'm going to simply show it to you from his book. Here, Joseph Smith, in dictating, stopped and completely changed direction. And both of his scribes stop and change direction with him. It's a fantastic illustration right there. And you can read about it. It's in the pink. The comment on that one. We have Abraham 126. Smith evidently changed the direction of the narrative. And we see both Williams and Parrish recorded four words. The correction of this error is definitive evidence that both Parrish and Williams were writing as Joseph Smith was dictating. Another example of this kind of emendation is right here. And I really love this one. This, this was the one that convinced me. I, I mean, I said, wow, this is fabulous. And Smoot never even touches it. It makes me wonder, did he actually read through this stuff? I'm not convinced he did. Anyway, here's the information. Let me hold up there so that you can see it. Okay, so in Abraham 117, Smith dictated, quote, their hearts are turned, unquote, and immediately changed it to, quote, they have turned their hearts, unquote. Now, this emendation disproves any assertion that Williams and Parrish were copying from a now missing document 
or that Parrish was simply copying Williams' document. Note that Parrish stopped writing before he completed the word turned, but wrote turn before crossing it out. This suggests that the two men wrote at different speeds when Joseph Smith made a correction. This is most reasonably explained as the result of oral dictation. I love that example. That's fantastic. That's fabulous evidence. It's stuff like this that just thrills me because it helps add clarity to just what is going on with Joseph Smith and his scribes. Joseph Smith is dictating the translation and the scribes are writing it down. The evidence for that, both Dan Vogel and Brett Metcalf have been working on for decades, right? You won't see the apologists describe all of these anomalies in these documents like this because they don't want you to know that. They don't want Joseph Smith to be associated here. Why? Because his translation did not come out correct. The papyri don't translate into the book of Abraham. Joseph Smith blew it. That's the bottom line. That's why. Our evidence shows that. Now, this next issue, another absolutely powerful point that just, I, I laughed when I saw this. And I want to read this also. I will show it to you while I'm reading it because this is so good. Yeah, that'll, that'll work. Just there's the evidence. Now, the difference in the name of the god Elkina versus Echiner. This difference provides evidence that Parrish and Williams sometimes misheard Joseph's dictation rather than mistranslating while supposedly copying someone else and then wiping away, Parrish consistently spelled the name Elkaner, except once when he first wrote Elkanah, then quickly wipe-erased the terminal A-H and overwrote E-R. Williams, on the other hand, wrote Elk. Kenner for the first two occurrences of the name, but then started writing the word phonetically Elkina with an A-H ending. The confusion was likely due to Smith's New England non-rhotic accent, which could either drop or add a terminal R sound. It is like pronouncing Wata for water, or idea for idea. A similar error occurred on page 34 in the Bound Grammar when Smith said that the planet Kolob had been discovered by Methuselah and also by Abraham, but Parrish wrote Methuselah. There are also instances where Parrish and William mistake the, T-H-E-E, and they write the, T-H-E, and son, S-O-N, for S-U-N. 
All of this is beautiful, classical evidence for Joseph Smith being in charge, taking the lead, translating the Egyptian, and dictating it to his two scribes, and they are writing it down. They are not independently trying to translate Egyptian on their own, like Nibley so silly claimed, and which Guy and Rhodes and Moustine and now Smoot, unfortunately, it's not too late to turn back yet, Smoot, but you're really closing in on it quick, man. Uh, this is fantastic information using the actual evidence that we have. Now, here is the here is the other thing that I wanted to and then he talks about punctuation. I'm not gonna worry about it. Oh, and then he shows a dittography, ditto dittography uh that has occurred. Where is this, Dan? For Pete's sake, where'd you put this? Uh this this particular is really good. I wanted to share this. Oh, I can't find it. Okay, here's here. Oh, yes, I can. I can too. Here we go. Okay. All right. This is excellent. Number nine, right? Oh, where to put it? Oh, this is what he was talking about. This, now I'm going to show you, this is the translation. This is the written down of the first two Egyptian hieroglyphs on the top corner of the Book of Breathings. And then there was that gap. And in that gap, we saw this hieroglyph. This is their transcription. I already showed you that. They broke that apart and gave it the five-degree system. The reason we know that this is considered that Joseph Smith and his scribes were translating the Egyptian is because I'm going to show you out of the Joseph Smith papers book itself because this is really, really wonderful. The reason we know that they were translating this is because Phelps actually numbered the hieroglyphs. The first one, he had number one, and he directly tied it to the land of the Chaldees. And then he numbered the second hieroglyph number two, and he tied it specifically to the name Abraham in the translation. And I want to show you this. This is really awesome right there. This is beautiful how he does this. There's the hieroglyph. There's the number one. And there's the number one in the land of the Chaldees. There's the hieroglyph. 
there's the number two, and then the number two is by the name Abraham. Then this particular character is translated out in its fifth degree. And the translation of that in the fifth degree says, desiring to be one who possessed great knowledge, a greater follower of righteousness, a possessor of greater knowledge, a father of many nations, a prince of peace, one who keeps the commandments of God, a rightful heir, a high priest holding the right belonging to the fathers, from the beginning of time, even from the beginning, or before the foundation of the earth, down to the present time, even the right of the firstborn, or the first man, who is Adam, or first father, the, through the fathers unto me. This is one Egyptian character in all of its five degrees, translating out an entire paragraph. Now, Nibley mocked that kind of disproportion, but in the grammar, they show that that's their method. And Oliver Cowdery had described in The Messenger and Advocate the incredible comprehensiveness of the Egyptian language. And that comprehensiveness was reflected in society's understanding. See, this was before Champollion's translation got to America. So basically more or less uh, people had this approach of the mystic all-inclusive aspect using Athanasius Kircher's method of a mystical correspondence with nature. The Egyptian hieroglyphs were drawings from nature, and they corresponded to all aspects of all kinds of natural phenomenon, so that one mere hieroglyphic could give you an entire book. Now, this is remarkably similar in some respects with how the Jews treat the Hebrew in the Kabbalah. That's quite, Dan, Dan Vogel doesn't give that. I'm saying that. With my mystical studies with Joe Steve Swick, um, we studied the Zohar together, and we studied the Kabbalah together, and we studied the Bahir and the Sefer Yetzirah, and there were times when the rabbis would say, in the future, when the before the Messiah can come, one letter in the Torah will be changed, and that will completely give an entire new meaning to the Torah. It'll have to be expanded, and then the Messiah can come. Very similar with the Egyptian hieroglyphic, and that is what Joseph Smith and his scribes, Oliver Cowdery described it as the comprehensiveness of the language.
this material that they were, now see, in the alphabet, there's three different uh, folio pages of the Egyptian alphabet. One in Joseph Smith's handwriting, one in Oliver Cowdery's handwriting, and one in, uh, was it William Phelps, Dan? I think it was William Phelps' handwriting. Each one of them had an alphabet. In the Joseph Smith papers, remarkably enough, and I want to show you this from the Joseph Smith papers book also, although Dan does have it. I'll show it to you on the papyri first. There it is on the papyri. Those characters that I bracketed outside, I didn't want to ruin the photograph. There's five or six characters there. Those are the pure language of Adam characters. And the characters below those are dealing with what Joseph Smith was saying was the patriarchal priesthood. In the Egyptian papyri that he had bought from Michael Chandler, that he got the book of Abraham from. That is quite interesting. If nothing else, it's entertaining as I'll get out. Now, this is on the William Phelps letter to Sally Phelps, showing characters and definitions of the pure language of Adam. And there are the characters of the pure language of Adam on this side. And then they are shown in the alphabet of the papyri on that side. And in the, this is really so fascinating because there it is. It's easier to see in this with in the black and white than it is on the color. There's those same letters again from the from the uh, pure language of Adam that is in the Egyptian alphabet that Joseph Smith and the brethren were uh, putting together. And there is the characters in the alphabet, 10, 11, 12, 13, and 14. This is the definition of the patriarchs being handed down the priesthood that Joseph Smith said the Egyptian characters were talking about. So Joseph Smith is focusing on the pure language of Adam in the Egyptian alphabet, which contemporaries of his day believed the hieroglyphics were. So he's dealing with knowledge that is in the air, so to speak, and on the papyri, right? And he is also following Josephus, I haven't been reading the comments, so I hope Dan's keeping me online. If I'm out of line, I apologize. Follow what Dan says. He's the one that knows. I'm just doing this by memory. If I remember right, Joseph Smith's 
theme of a passing down of the government power he got from Josephus's information and in the antiquities because Genesis does not record uh, Adam having the original government and then handing it down through to his sons and his sons' sons and the fathers to the sons. And see, this is a Book of Abraham theme. Uh, Joseph Smith doing this patriarchal priesthood or damning Joseph Smith Sr. as the first patriarch of the church and then saying that the papyri was also describing this descent of the patriarchal priesthood. And notice this is in the alphabet, halfway down through the alphabet. The first half of the Egyptian alphabet has nothing to do with Abraham yet. We're not talking about Abraham. In fact, I've skipped over the princess Khatuman. The first part of the alphabet is all about the princess Khatuman and King Onitis. Joseph Smith was more interested in dealing with the identification of the mummies. He wasn't dealing with the book of Abraham. The valuable discovery booklet, the notebook, is about Princess Khatuman and the matriarchal line, the royal line. Now, it did label Khatuman as an individual and her mother, but the discussion is the storyline of the woman discovering Egypt underwater. The valuable discovery notebook is not from the Book of Breathings or the Book of the Dead that Joseph Smith identified as the Book of Joseph, but it's from the Book of the Dead of Amenhotep, which we don't have. We're suspecting that was destroyed in the Chicago Fire of 1871. But Joseph Smith translated enough that he identified the mummies, his purpose in the alphabet, when he started giving us the Egyptian alphabet, right? The first part of the alphabet. The theme was to establish who the mummies were and how two Hebrew prophets' records got hooked up with the Egyptian mummies. That's what Joseph Smith was doing in the first part of the Egyptian alphabet. See, none of the apologists have talked about this. And yet the evidence is very clear in both the grammar and the other. In the grammar, they expand this quite a bit. And the story does make it into the book of Abraham. Interestingly enough, very interesting how that works. The other, the second part of the Egyptian alphabet, not the grammar, but the alphabet, is from the hieroglyphics, not from the pure language of Adam now, but this is the hieroglyphics to the right of facsimile number one in the columns of the hieroglyphs. This figure here was identified as Kolob by Joseph Smith. So we have, hey, 
he oop ah and hoey oop and flos isis and flos east and all that. Joseph Smith identified all of that from the hieroglyphics in the columns from facsimile number one, and he put those in his alphabet. But notice facsimile number one is not the Book of Breathings. So Joseph Smith has not gotten to the Book of Abraham yet. He's still discussing the provenance of the papyri, which came from Khatumen and King Onitas through the fathers handing down the priesthood and the records. So with all of the hieroglyphics that Joseph Smith is identifying in the alphabet, he is getting from the hieroglyphics next to facsimile number one, where he found the signature of Abraham. And that that is this information. He's getting all of the information in the alphabet and grammar from this part of the hieroglyphs on the other side. See, over here, over here is the Book of Breathings. Joseph Smith in the alphabet is working from this side with the hieroglyphics. And I've got a good graphic to show you there. See, there's the translation of the Book of Abraham, the hieroglyphs coming from the Book of Breathings, here, on this side of facsimile number one, is the book of Abraham. But on this side, with these hieroglyphs, we're getting the Egyptian alphabet, which dealt with the priesthood, patriarchal handing down of the priesthood. And in the... In the valuable discovery notebook is where Joseph Smith was identifying the princess Katuman and her father Onitas, and he was identifying the mummies. And we have it that Lucy Smith told several visitors that one of the mummies was King Onitas. So the papyri is setting up the issue of the patriarchal priesthood and the reason why Pharaoh could not hold the patriarchal priesthood is because it came through the matriarchal line which brought in that female mummies that Joseph Smith had and King Onidas was the male mummy who had the roll on his breast that translated into the book of Abraham. So all of the papyri, all of the working papers of Joseph Smith tie together 
in a context of Joseph Smith's revealed doctrines. Clever boy. Yeah. The idea was, oh, here we go. The, yeah, this is beautiful. I'm going to go ahead and break into this, Dan. I hope you don't mind me doing this. Even if you do, that's tough luck. I'm going to do it. Now, this is a, the, the comparison of characters in the Khatuman passage in the Valuable Discovery Notebook and the characters in the alphabet and grammar that is describing Khatuman and the various phases of the Egyptian royalty. And this is Oliver Cowdery's valuable discovery, and this is him in the Egyptian alphabet. Then we have the various, the next part of the alphabet, we have Oliver Cowdery's here, and then his, this is his alphabet, and then this is the grammar, and then he has the description of the passing down through the various lines of authority. And the way they got it was through the hieroglyphs, and they were putting together composite characters in order to translate many, many, many concepts within each hieroglyphic, which correlates beautifully with Oliver Cowdery saying the Egyptian is the most comprehensive language. At one point, someone pointed out that once they translate all the hieroglyphs from the book of Abraham, it would be a book the size of the Bible. Well, that, you know, Joseph Smith got all of this idea about the hieroglyphics, of course, from the Book of Mormon. When the when Mormon said, well, we would have done it in the Hebrew, but the plates are too small. We did it in the Egyptian because it's a shorthand Egyptian. That's not how Mormon put it, but uh, it was a shorthand Egyptian. So this idea, this theme that Joseph Smith is putting in the Egyptian dynasty, that his alphabet and grammar and the papyri deal with the uh, royal dynasty and the handing down of the priesthood, and that the records from antiquity going all the way back to Adam, and Adam and the records are talked about in the grammar to the papyri, as well as the Adamic language itself is in the papyri, the pure language, which is quite remarkable. And he shows, Vogel does, how this is the, this is the pure language that Phelps talks about here. And this is the Egyptian alphabet description off of the hieroglyphs. There's the interpretation and translation of the pure language of Adam in the Egyptian hieroglyphs that eventually became part of Joseph Smith's 
hoped for restoration of the patriarchal priesthood and the ideas in the book of Abraham. So that is quite a fascinating three chapters that Vogel gives us, showing us that there is more going on than what the apologists have led on to, and that I, I want to show you this too, because again, Guy and Mulstein and not so much Rhodes, but Guy and Mulstein and now Smoots trying to follow suit have basically said in their reverse translation theory, which is just silly, it doesn't have any of this evidence at all. Uh, and yet Vogel has taken them to task showing the evidence does not work with the reverse translation theory. They actually say that once, once uh, Parrish and Williams uh, wrote all of this material down, then Joseph Smith simply copied them. They completely ignore the official history of the church, <laughs> which is bizarre. Vogel demonstrates without question that Joseph Smith did not just simply copy Warren Parrish and Phelps or Williams, because if he did, there would be no reason for him to spell words differently than they did. And yet time and time and time and time again, we see evidence of Joseph Smith spelling words differently than Parrish and Williams did. And I mean a lot. It wasn't just a couple of minor issues. It was a lot of different kinds of spellings that Joseph Smith did different, showing that he was not doing the copying. He was definitely involved, and he was definitely involved as the translator. Duh. It's amazing that they're ignoring the official history of the church, isn't it? So that gives you a reason why I find it well worth reading, Danville. And I'm just, that's just the first three chapters, you guys. And I've kind of skimmed and back and forth. To really get the meat of it, you need to read that book. But I haven't even got to some of the real, real good parts later on on, uh, on other items. But this is the area that Smoot ignored, and now we can see why. Because Joseph Smith is the leader. He is the one in charge of this project. We have real good evidence that he was dictating to other guys without question. We have real good evidence that he established the pure Adamic language as Egyptian hieroglyphics. And it was in the papyri, and it finds its way into the principle of the passing down of the records and the priesthood, being seekers for righteousness and greater knower of righteousness and all that jazz into the very text of the book of Abraham. And 
all of this is pure baloney. <laughs> the papyri doesn't do any of this whatsoever. And yet Joseph Smith said it did. So that's what I wanted to share with you tonight. Um, I wanted to give you an idea of why Vogel clarifies some things. He's showing that the alphabet, the Egyptian alphabet, is not just for the book of Abraham. There are other uh, issues. The valuable discovery notebook, which no apologist has ever bothered to explain. We finally now understand it's about Princess Khatuman and the mummies. Thank you, Dan Vogel. We now know more about the patriarchal priesthood, and we do know more about the source of the book of Abraham and the theme of the kind of person that Abraham was is found in Josephus and in Adam Clark in his Bible commentary as Vogel, among other sources as well that he indicates and brings out. So uh, this is magnificent stuff that gives us a good chronology, that gives us a good understanding, deeper, better, more proper, in line with what the evidence actually tells us. Not what we hope, not what we wish, not what we have testimonies of, but what we can see with our own eyes. And it's all available on the church's website. So that's what I wanted to share with you tonight. Thanks for watching the Backyard Professor Fireside. I hope you guys have all had fun. Uh, let's, uh, I'm going to take a few minutes. It's, I'm almost two hours. Why don't I take a few minutes and talk with you, see what the heck you're doing? Oh, you guys are having way too much fun. Hey, Lamb Chop, welcome. Huff Daddy. I, I have tried very hard to kick their butts tonight, Huff Daddy. Absolutely. But I'm, I'm following the lead of, uh, Dan Vogel's scholarship and Brent Metcalf's and Radio Free Mormon and John DeLynn in, in giving Robert Rittner his final will and testament, basically, on his Egyptian knowledge and all that. All that's really important to, to grasp. So, yeah, yes, thank you. That was what I was intending, fine business operator. A, a really good, powerful episode tonight because I knew I had the evidence. I mean, because Vogel has it, but he has it in such a way. See, I've never seen this explained by apologists this way. Not ever. They don't bother with any of this stuff, you know. They just want to, they have Book of Abraham-itis on the brain. All they want to do is, well, we want to establish the divine authenticity of the Book of Abraham. Yeah, well, there's a lot more going on here than just that, right? So... Very, very interesting. Well, thank you, Mark Crispin. I always try to give you top-notch podcasts. There's so much information. Absolutely, you guys. I I just, I love doing this, and I love having you guys. You're the best audience. Give some more thumbs up. All of you. Yeah, baby. I'll give you my thumbprint right there. That's for you, Huff Daddy. Two of them, one from the left and one from the right. Thank you, Tim Rathbone. I appreciate that. Paul Osborne. Been talking zippity zip zip. Yeah. Oh, and hey, Paul Osborne has demonstrated. Now, Smoot does talk about this, and so does Vogel. Now, Vogel mentions it, but Paul Osborne had on the Egyptian word shiny hod. Now, at one point, as an apologist, uh, I wrote a big write up on shiny hod, how it authenticated Joseph Smith. And Paul Osborne also wrote one up when he was an apologist. And uh, in the Celestial Forum on Mormon Discussion, 
over on Shade's message board in the Celestial, Paul Osborne has shown how shiny ha was not considered an Egyptian word by Joseph Smith. He had already been using it before 1835 in some of the other revelations in the Doctrine and Covenants. So he shows how it wasn't even a proper Egyptian word. And then RFM and John DeLynn in their second part of the interview with Robert Rittner, Robert Rittner shows why shiny hawk cannot be considered an actual Egyptian word. What we all were doing as mistakes was we were splitting up the word shine and ha, H-A-H. And Paul Osborne shows many, many places in Joseph Smith's revelations where H-A-H was used previously to even the papyri. You can't take you can't take the word apart and then take the word shine, find an Egyptian hieroglyphic, and then the word ha and take the hieroglyphic and recombine them. Now that was my approach. That's how I did my apologetic information. And uh, Robert Rittner destroys that. Uh, besides, like Paul Osborne has already shown, and of course, anybody who just looks at first grade hieroglyphic levels of Egyptian knows that the sun is not shiny ha. The sun is always called Ray, R-A, right? Duh. Yeah. I mean, wow, yeah, but as apologists, you know, Paul and I thought we were really beating up the critics with this authenticating word. And then Osborne, in his masterful research, has completely destroyed Shiny Ha. Vogel has also demonstrated that as well, that Shiny Ha can't possibly be a valid word. Neither can Olea as the moon. Uh, it was in the it was in the almanacs of Joseph Smith's day that I wanted to show you this. I had this graphic. Yeah, right here, Vogel shows this too in his book. It's in the almanacs. Look at that symbol for earth, earth in its four quarters. That was in the almanacs, but notice how they change out the sun and the stars. The hieroglyphics that Joseph Smith in the grammar describing the astronomical aspects of the grammar, which I didn't get into tonight, maybe I can do that for next week, is really interesting. Oh, there we go. Sorry, I was holding it too close. There's the sun and the earth and the stars, but that's in the almanacs, and that's actually the basic hieroglyphics that the uh, brethren gave as the astronomical situations in the uh, papyri. Really interesting how they did that. And, of course, I can't find it right now. Dadgummit. I'll have to find it next time. Anyway, I've got it here somewhere. I'll find it. I'll find it and let you know. Yeah, the astronomical aspects of the astronomy is really interesting how Vogel ties it in and shows how the astronomy 
does not uh, help out at all with the uh, with the problems in the papyri. I'll, I'll find it and get it back with you. So anyway, yeah, there's some good stuff. Uh, Paul Osborne has been doing some outstanding research on the various Egyptological aspects of uh, facsimile number three that I'd like to get into more depth. Uh, I just wanted to, I had an opportunity to really show a good example between the difference between what apologetics is and what scholarship is. And this is really the stellar, the stellar example. So you're late to the party, Dean Schwenk, but you're always welcome. You can always rewatch the video. You didn't miss much except all of the fun uh, in the chat. Yeah, Dan Vogel just said polemics versus real scholarship. Truly, yeah. Uh, again, uh, Dan told me in an email, he said, uh, basically, uh, Smoot still wants to be cute and insulting rather than scholarly and substantive. And I mean, that's all the difference right there. Yeah. Uh, he, he's trying too hard to uh, show wit instead of scholarship. Uh, he, he ends up being more insulting against valid scholarship than he ever should. Uh, and someday that'll come and bite him back in the butt. Um, so, so yeah, Shana Ha'olea was an atomic word. Yeah, that's right. Thank you, Dan. Yes, yes, it really was. So again, this combination with the atomic and the, yeah, Ray. Ray is the sun, Paul Osborne, right? I know I'm right because I'm following you and you haven't been found wrong to, with much of anything, neither you nor Vogel. So you're good people. You're good people to hang out with. Okay, you guys. I'm not so sure he will either. Uh, Paul was just saying, I'm not sure Smoot will last long in the church. He may or may not. That's irrelevant to whether he lasts long in scholarship as a valid, credible scholar or not. Uh, his time is running out. He had better decide to do some good stuff instead of worrying about publishing an interpreter. I mean, wow, you can do so much better than that. So anyway, that's probably my bias showing through. But okay. I've been, I've been uh, two hours, you guys. And once again, as always, thank you so much for your contributions. They do help. I appreciate it. Uh, Mormon Discussions, Inc. appreciates it. We try to work very hard to give you good quality information, to have some fun, to help you go away feeling, man, that was worth two hours. He delivered. Uh, I hope that's the case. Uh, I always have good information because I follow the good scholars and because I do a lot of reading. If you have any suggestions, please let me know. I know some of you have mentioned some church history items that you'd like me to look into, and I will. I will in time, I promise. I'm trying to do this uh, series on the papyri and the book of Abraham and all because right now it's the hottest topic going for uh, you know, the church wants to imagine that it's performing rescue missions. Whoa, that's so impressive. Well, this is what you're going to have to deal with. You know, good luck. <laughs> because uh, in order to rescue, it just appears to me like they have to fight the very evidence that they claim Joseph Smith is proven a true prophet. And the Holy Ghost has testified to them of that. And I just can't fathom that. That 
that can't possibly be right. They, they can't possibly know how the Holy Ghost operates if they're saying the Holy Ghost is telling them the book of Abraham is a true translation. That, Given the definition and the description of the Holy Ghost in the scriptures, that simply can't happen. That just can't. So I don't know what to tell them. Maybe they'll figure it out. Who knows? Okay, you guys, patty cake, thank you. What's the symbol for Kolob? It's, it's, I'll show you. I've got the symbol for Kolob. Yeah, baby. You're not asking me, though. I know I'm being a smart aleck. We do have the symbol for Kolob, though. Can't remember what it is in Egyptian, but I know right where it's at. If I can ever find the cotton picking thing. It's a really cool symbol, but it's off of uh, facsimile number one. It's off of the uh, right-hand side on facsimile number one. All right, where did it all go? All right, I'm getting there, I'm getting there. Right there. There it is, Kolob. That's in the uh, third column to the right of facsimile number one. Right there, Kolob. Proof that Joseph Smith is a true prophet. He found Kolob on the papyri. As a genuine Egyptian word, according to the Holy Ghost, it's too bad that it's all bunk, <laughs> right? So there you go. Yeah, Abraham is a hot topic, yeah. And thank you, Dan Vogel, for uh, making it a more clear hot topic. Oh, and by the way, I tried to call you just before I came on, about seven minutes before, and you didn't answer your phone. Dan Vogel, how could you? And you haven't set up your email. I was going to tell you, hey, I'm coming on. Come on over. <laughs> so anyway, just so you know, I'm doing my part. I'm trying to stay in touch, young man. Anyway, I'll email you. I've got some other stuff I want to talk to you about. Anyway, and you too, Paul Osborne. I'm going to talk to you some more too. Yeah, it's shaped like an L, the collab. Okay, you guys. All right, I'm going to go. Uh, you guys have a good week. And I will come back next time, same time, same place. And I will have another huge adventure. I might deal with the uh, Joseph Smith astronomical uh, stuff in the papyri and in the facsimile. I know you wanted to do the facsimiles, but I had to do this book review smoot because Dan Vogel has some real good information on the astronomy in the facsimile number two. And I think I will do that one next week because that's always a fun, hot topic. It's a really good stuff. And uh, Vogel massacres the uh, astronomical defense that apologists have done based again on the evidence. So that'll be next week's topic, astronomy in facsimile number two. So good night, you all. Yep, you're very welcome, all of you. I love y'all. I gotta go. You guys have a good, safe week. Be good. Do well. Have fun. Be kind. And I will see you next week on the Backyard Professor Sunday Night Firesides. Here live, just for you, the best audience in the world. Man, when we distinguish ourselves, we really distinguish ourselves. All right, I gotta go, man. Hasta la vista, baby.